Cambodia has just recently died. And in place, his son Prince Sinuk is put in charge as the new leader of Cambodia. Now, Prince Sinuk is loved by the people of Cambodia, or by the majority at least. He's a very charismatic and likeable person. However, not everyone feels the same way. There are many within the government who do not like Prince Sinuk for many reasons. To begin with, he's more concerned with filming and directing in movies than he is with foreign policy. And towards the end of his uh, leadership, he begins to seek astrologers in order to decide policies. In fact, he even makes this big project in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia. He builds a giant casino. Now, needless to say, a lot of the party members are not happy with Prince Sinuk. In the exact same year, a young man by the name of Salah Saar is in the Kampuchean People's Revolutionary Party, which is a pro-Cambodian communist party. And by 1960, he's the third highest official in this party. And by 1966, the party has now been renamed as the Khmer Rouge, and their leader, Salah Saar, has taken on the name Pol Pot. Now, in 1970, Sinok leaves to Paris. He's deadly sick and he needs medical treatment, so he leaves to Paris. And in his place, he puts a man by the name of Lon Nol. Now, Lon Nol was one of those party members who was not so pleased with what Prince Sinok was doing. In fact, as soon as Sinok has left the country, Lon Nol goes and undoes everything that Sinok has done. For example, he destroys the casino that Prince Sinok had built. Prince Sinok was also a pro-communist, and he was supporting the Vietnamese soldiers, the Viet Cong. Well, our friend Lon Nol was not communist. He was anti-communist, and so he decides to cut off all resources and all supplies to the Viet Cong. He also changes the currency of Cambodia simply so that whatever currency the Viet Cong have in their hands is now useless. Now, Sinok comes back expecting to assume back leadership, but Lon Nol has already decided that he's the new leader of Cambodia. So Sinok decides to make a deal with the devil. He decides to ally himself with the Khmer Rouge. Both of them are pro-communist, and both of them want Lon Nol out of power. And in 1975, the Khmer Rouge invade the capital Phnom Penh, and Lon Nol flies away with a million dollars in a helicopter. The Khmer Rouge has officially risen to power. Now, immediately, as soon as they've risen to power, they issue in a massive evacuation. They say, everybody, we need to get out. The Americans are going to come and bomb us now that if they find out what's going to come. Everyone needs to leave the capital immediately. And there's a mass evacuation of two million people. Doesn't matter whether you're young or old, whether you're sick, you could be pregnant. It does not matter. You are going and we are leaving Phnom Penh. During this mass evacuation of 2 million people, 500,000 die just in the way. If you can't keep up and you can't move with the, uh, the rest of the group, you are simply left behind to die. The Khmer Rouge immediately become this tyrannical government. You see, the main aim was they, would, they wanted racial purity, Cambodian racial purity, and they wanted to get back to their roots. So in order to do this, they begin by moving everyone out of an urban area and they move them into the rural countryside and they start creating little villages because they see that urbanization is an influence from the West 
And they don't want Western culture, they want pure Cambodian culture. And so, uh, technology is rejected. If you're caught using technology, execution. If you're an educated person, well, you've been educated by the West, so therefore you've been influenced, you're no longer pure execution. If you were caught wearing glasses, you would probably get executed. This was how extreme the Khmer Rouge went to, the lengths they would go to to ensure racial purity. Religion was banned, and Cambodia became known as the killing fields because of the brutal violence that was taking place. Historians just cannot measure the amount of lives that were taken during this time, but statistics vary from 1.6 to 3 million deaths. And Pol Pot became incredibly paranoid. He was afraid that people would try and steal his power, and so every now and then in his party, he'd just have giant cullings or purgings. He'd kill half the party and bring in new people. He'd only keep them in long enough for them to not come and take his place. Now, in 1978, Vietnam and Cambodia seem to have some border clashes. The Khmer Rouge and the Viet Cong soldiers are having some issues, and eventually the Viet Cong come and attack Phnom Penh, and they take back Cambodia from the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge were only in power for three and a half years. But from that small period of time, Cambodia still to this day has not fully recovered from the devastating effects of the Khmer Rouge. Cambodia is still stuck in poverty, and Phnom Penh is actually the prostitution capital of the world. Cambodia suffered greatly in just a period of three and a half years. But what does this have to do with the Bible? Does the Khmer Rouge have anything to do with the Bible? Does the Bible offer anything or any advice when it comes to this event in history? The Bible is a very unique book in many aspects. For example, it was written in three different continents by several different authors over a period of 4,000 years. And the fact that it remains consistent during that time is incredible in and of itself. But the Bible is also unique in that it contains what we refer to as prophecy, which is uh, predictions of the future in order to prove the divine nature of the Bible. Information that could only be, have been given to a person by God. Now, when it comes to prophecy, a lot of the books you like to use symbols and or a code, if you would. And unfortunately, when a lot of people approach prophecy, they put their own interpretation of speculation. But we're told in the Bible that there is no human interpretation of prophecy. There is only God's interpretation. So today, as we look at prophecy, we're going to look for God's interpretation and not our own. Never will we speculate. We'll only ever use the Bible as our source. The prophet Isaiah tells us, to, uh, to look at the Bible line upon line and precept upon precept. In order to understand the Bible, you use the Bible. So keep that in mind as we go through our sermon today. Can you all please turn with me to Revelation chapter 11? Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. 
Here we're given, the Gentiles are given a period of time, 42 months. In order to understand this biblical time period, let's use the Bible, line upon line, precept upon precept. Let's allow the Bible to tell us about this period of time. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. He says, And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for each year. This is what a lot of biblical scholars refer to as a day for year principle. And we find this countless times in the Bible. This is one example that God gives to Ezekiel. Another example can be found in, uh, back in the Pentateuch when the spies go into Canaan and they spy for 40 days. And when they come back and they refuse to go into Canaan, God says, well, for every day that you spent spying in Canaan, you're going to spend a year wandering in the wilderness, 40 days in, in Canaan, 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus himself reaffirms this also in Luke chapter 13. There are several instances of this. When referring to one prophetic day, it translates to one literal year. And this is a biblical principle found multiple times in the Bible. So when we have a period of 42 months, we're going to use a Jewish calendar which has 30 days, which leads us to a period of 1,260 days, or 1,260 literal years. Now, where do we put this period of time? We're told that the Gentiles in Revelation 11 are given this certain amount of time, but where, where do we put this in a biblical timeline? The good thing is we don't have to speculate at all. The Bible tells you where to put this period of time, this period of history. The Bible gives you a clear timeline, so you don't have to guess to put this period of time at at the back of history, at the front of history, in the middle. We don't have to do anything. The Bible tells us what to do. You'll find that this number, 1,260, appears multiple times in the Bible. It appears in Daniel chapter 7, in reference to the little horn, Revelation 12, in reference to the dragon, and Revelation 13, in reference to the sea beast. And you'll find that if you look at all of these points of identification for all three, All of them represent the exact same figure in history, and all of them are in power for the exact same amount of time. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to go into all three of those, but please, if you are interested in learning more about that, please see me afterwards. I have plenty of Bible studies on that that I would love to give you. But we are speaking about these three specific points of time. Now, let's reference Daniel chapter 7 in order to get our basis of time. In Daniel chapter 7... Daniel has a vision of four beasts. We have the lion, which is of Babylon. We have the bear, which represents me to Persia, a leopard for Greece, and then a great iron beast for Rome. And these you'll find correlate in the exact same countries or nations as that found in Daniel chapter 2. So we have these four nations, and then our final beast has ten horns. Now, we know from history that if the fourth beast is, in fact, uh, pagan Rome, that at the fall of Rome, Rome was divided into ten states, the ten horns of the fourth beast, or you could say the ten toes of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. So what we find is we see the fall of Rome, 
of pagan Rome in 476. And then this power, this little horn, will come up and reign for 1,260 years. So immediately we're looking for a power that comes from pagan Rome or from Europe. And also we're given clear details that three of the horns or three of these divided states of Europe will have to be uprooted before this period comes. And what we find is that the identification of this power is none other than Papal Rome. Papal Rome uproots three of the states, destroys three of the states of Rome, and then it rises to power in 578 AD. This is when Justinian decrees that the, the Papal Rome now has power over the state, over the Roman state. And so begins this period of 1,260 years. Now, if it begins in 578 AD, which is when Papal Rome came into power, that means that it has to end exactly at 1798 AD. What happened in 1798 AD? We find that Napoleon sends his, French, uh, sends his general Berthier to Rome and he kidnaps the Pope. And the papacy collapses overnight and it has never had the exact same power that it had during this period. As soon as the Pope was kidnapped, the papacy fell overnight. And we find that the Bible was accurate in predicting this 100%. But this is just purely giving us a setting, a time setting in a biblical timeline as to when the rest of our uh, narrative will continue on. So it goes in this period of 1,260 years. Let's continue reading. Turn with me back to Revelation chapter 11. And we'll begin in verse 3. Verse 3, And I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, or 1,260 literal years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven, so that no rain falls in the day of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Here we find two of our characters. We find the two witnesses. Now, who are these people? A lot of people immediately speculate, well, they seem to perform the miracles of Moses and Elijah, so they must be Moses and Elijah coming back down to earth. But immediately, that's going into speculation territory. We don't want to speculate. We don't want to make our own interpretation. We want God's interpretation. So in order to do that, we'll use the Bible to tell us who the two witnesses are. We won't come up with the answer ourselves. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 2. And this is an angel speaking to Zechariah. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other to its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel, who talked with me, saying, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, 
do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Notice that the exact same description is given in Zechariah of these two olive trees and two lampstands. It's identical to the one that we're given in Revelation 11, which makes sense that the biblical author, in order to get a message across, would use other biblical books to reference from, line upon line, precept upon precept. And so what what does the angel say these are? He says, this is the word of the Lord. Is this consistent with the rest of what we read in Revelation 11? For example, we uh, we read that they have powers to shut up heaven and turn water to blood. Does the word of the Lord have this power? Moses and Elijah, whenever they went to perform a miracle, in whose name did they say it? In the word word of the Lord, in God's name. We find in the end of Revelation that it says, if anyone adds or takes away from the word of the Lord, plagues will fall upon them. So the word of the Lord has these abilities, has the ability to perform miracles and to send plagues. Let's continue reading in Zechariah. We're going to uh, read from verse 11 in the same chapter. Then I answered and I said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, unfortunately, in verse 14, we actually lose quite a bit in the translation because in the Aramaic, when we say, Who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth? Actually, only one single word is used there in Aramaic, and the word used is Hadashah. And we lose a lot in translation because the word Hadashah actually just means to produce light. Isn't the word, of, the word of God a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path? In the same way, also, isn't the word of God like a dual-edged sword, too? So we find, uh, can I have the next slide? We find that the two witnesses, they preached for 1,260 years. They're two olive trees and two lampstands with the power to perform miracles. So who are these two witnesses? Well, they're the word of the Lord. And if we think of two of them, well, what's the physical manifestation of the Word of God? The physical manifestation of the Word of God is the Bible. The Bible is exactly that. What do we have? How many parts of the Bible are there? Two, the Old and New Testament. We have two witnesses. Even Jesus says, he, when the Pharisees question him about him being the Messiah, he says, look to the Scriptures, they, are, they, they bear witness of me. So who brought their two witnesses today? So, our two witnesses we've identified is the Word of the Lord, the Bible, and the Old and New Testament. Now, turn with me back to Revelation 11. We're going to see what happens to our two witnesses. What is going to happen to them? Back to Revelation 11. And we're picking up in verse 7. Now, when they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Did someone just kill the Bible? 
Who killed the Bible? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Somebody has just gone and killed our two witnesses. Somebody went and killed the Bible. So now a new mystery begins that we need to solve. Who killed the two witnesses? Well, notice in verse 7, immediately it says, when they finish their testimony. But also in verse 9, we're told that their bodies are not allowed to be put into graves. So even in death, they still bear witness. They're still there in the conscious mind and eye of the people that uh, that they were killed by. So the testimony hasn't quite finished yet. We're not right at the end of the 1,260-year period. We're so close to the end of it, though. So what we're looking for is a place and a group of people who killed the Bible right before the year 1798. If I could have that next slide. So who killed the Bible and where? Well, so far, what we're told is that the people who killed it were the inhabitants of spiritual Sodom, spiritual Egypt, And I'll just call it spiritual Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, please notice, please notice that it says the places that are spiritually Sodom. If these were three physical places, that'd be impossible because these places are all over the map. This is spiritual Sodom, spiritual Egypt. So we're looking at qualities that define these, uh, these places, that spiritually define them. What was the main... The significant thing about Sodom, Sodom was a place of complete immorality, so much so that God had to destroy it. Egypt, when Pharaoh was approached by Moses, and Moses said, thus says the Lord, what does Pharaoh say directly to the two witnesses? What does he say? Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Who is God? And this is pretty much one of our first biblical examples of atheism we see this who is God that I should obey him and then finally we have spiritual Golgotha why is it that at the end times Jesus says you fed me when I was hungry you clothed me when I was naked and then his followers say when did we do that for you Lord and then Jesus says whatever you did for the least of these you did for me why is it that on the right on the way to Damascus with Saul Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Jesus was up in heaven. He wasn't being persecuted, but who was? Saul was persecuting Jesus' people. Whatever you do to Jesus' people, you do to him. So, where exactly did this take place? Remember, we are looking for a period of time right before the end of 1798 where the Bible is killed. We're going to have to do a little bit of history lesson. There's a country at the moment that fits all of these qualities. And at the moment, there's been a revolution in France. You see, France has gotten tired of papal Rome. They're sick of it. They're sick of being told what to do. They're sick of the religious power and authority. And so they have this big revolution, and they usher in what is referred to as the Age of Reason. Now, the term was actually coined by author of a book. Uh, The title of the book was The Age of Reason, written by Thomas Paine. 
And so we find that the entire French society turned its back on religion, especially on Christianity, and they, had, they wanted nothing to do with the Bible. And in fact, the French government, on January the 21st of 1793, banned the Bible. In the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, that period of 1,260 years, the Bible was oppressed and in sackcloth, as we're told in verse 3, but at least it was still alive and breathing. It might have been chained to library walls, it might have only been written in Latin, but at least it was still alive. The French people went and murdered the Bible. Any copy of the Bible was brought into the city square and burnt. If you were caught with the Bible, you would be executed. And in fact, what they did was, they thought, we've overcome this age of superstition and religious nonsense. We now have logic and reason. But they did something even more ridiculous, if you ask me. They decided to make a goddess of reason. They would dress up a woman, adorn her with jewellery and nice clothing, put her on a cart, and they'd take the cart through the city square, and everyone would have to bow down to the goddess of reason. And any churches and cathedrals would turn into worship places of this goddess. Now, does France fulfill all of these, spiritual sodom? After the Bible was thrown out, and the only objective moral standard that the society had was thrown out, France went down the tubes. It was a terrible place to live in. It was full of immorality, not unlike Sodom. And where did this attitude come from? Well, who, who is God that I should obey him? The attitude of spiritual Egypt. When you, don't, when you don't identify God as being someone that you need to obey, what's the point of obeying his rules? You throw out the rules, you do as you please, and then we have spiritual Sodom. And spiritual Golgotha, we talked about, if you persecute God's people, you persecute him. If you were caught with a Bible in France, you would be killed. There was no doubt about it. To be religious during the age of reason was a death sentence. So France is the place in which the Bible was killed. But let's continue reading. Because the story hasn't quite finished yet. Let's pick up in verse 11. Now after three and a half days... The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. Now remember, three and a half prophetic days is equivalent of three and a half literal years. Three and a half literal years in history. Now, I said that the Bible was killed. It was abolished, it was banned, it was burnt by the decree of France on January 21st, 1793. Exactly three and a half years later, in June 1796, the French government decides, we've made a mistake. Our country has just gone down the tubes. People are doing as they please. There's no order. It's chaos. We need an objective moral standard back. We need the Bible back. And so the decree... Uh, that banned the Bible is overturned and the Bible is brought back into the country. Now, if that decree had happened on, in January of 1796, the prophecy would have been wrong. If it had happened in December of 1796, it would have been wrong. If it happened in the year 77 or 78, it would have been exactly wrong. But the Bible predicts with 100% accuracy how long and where the Bible would be dead. 
It would die in a place of spiritual Sodom, Egypt, and Golgotha right before the end of this 1,260-year period, and it would be dead for three and a half years before it would be resurrected. But what... Ah, so where was it? It was in France. But who killed the Bible is a bit more of a tricky question. We could say that it was the French people, but it was more of an ideology at the time. You see, this is where we see the birthplace of atheistic communism. This is the very first example of atheistic communism in history, a society that's led in this format, where there is no God and it's under communist principles. Now, I bet you're wondering, what relevance does any of this have with the two witnesses, uh, with the Khmer Rouge party? What does this got to do with Cambodia? Remember how I mentioned an author by the name of Thomas Paine, the, the man who wrote The Age of Reason? Paine had a protege by the name of George Hegel, who is known as the father of modern atheism. Now, Hegel's protege was a man you might recognize by the name of Charles Darwin. He would go on to be the father of Darwinian evolution. Interestingly enough, Darwin studied alongside a man you've also heard of called Karl Marx, who is known as the father of atheistic communism. And Marx's publications of atheistic communism would lead the way for leaders such as Lenin, Mao Zedong, and our young boy Salazar Pol Pot in creating atheistic communist societies such as that in Cambodia underneath the Khmer Rouge. You see, the Khmer Rouge never would have happened had it not been for the events in France. Had it not been for the events, the events in France in the Age of Reason, just a period of three and a half years, we never would have had all of these sequences of events in history lead up right to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. This is just three and a half years. Three and a half years of the Age of Reason in France has had an impact on history for the foreseeable future. Now, what I do find interesting is that in my research, the period where the Bible was dead was three and a half years, but also the exact period that the Khmer Rouge was in power was three and a half years. That's just a cool coincidence, but I find it cool. Now, I'm not saying, please don't take away from this, well, the Khmer Rouge is the fulfillment of Revelation 11. It's too far down the biblical timeline, and Christianity was not even in Cambodia, so there was no, there was no Christianity or Bible to kill in Cambodia. That's not what I'm saying. What we saw is that one event in history that the Bible predicted 100% led to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. But what relevance does this have for us? What meaning can we get out of studying the two witnesses in the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? What message can we hear and listen to when we interpret prophecy and look at history? Well, we can see that the word of the Lord always prevails. No matter what, God is going to take care of his word and it will always be with us so that we can read it. We've also seen that the Bible has been 100% accurate so far in predicting the events of history. And so for that reason, we have, no, we have no justifiable reason to think that the Bible will not make good on its promises in reference to the future and the second coming. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, 
nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And this is an encouraging thing because many people who were in, the, uh, who lived during the reign of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, to this day are still trying to seek out justice. They're still trying to find the people that hurt them during this time. But the Bible tells us that on the judgment day, everyone will be accountable for their sins. There will be justice for those people. And for those who do believe in him and put their trust in him, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more suffering or pain. And just flick over to Revelation chapter 22 with me and verse 20. And this is the last and final promise that God gives to us in his word. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. If the Bible has been 100% accurate so far in predicting the events of history, why should we doubt it now when it comes to the second coming? Let us have hope for that time when Jesus will return and know with full assurance that we can have certainty of his soon arrival.